Hello, everyone, and welcome to Roger's List. This is the podcast where I am watching every single one of Roger Ebert's great movies. My name is Steve Guntley, and I know the way to Shell Beach. My guest today uh, just floated in wearing a big old trench coat and a fedora, and he's chattering something. I can't quite hear him, but uh, it's it's Dan Reese. Hey, Dan. Hi, uh, I'm Dan Reese, and yeah, I know the way to Shell Beach, of course. I, I, I You just take the one road up to the other road, but no, no, there's the overpass. Huh. Gosh, you know, I, I think I spent my honeymoon there. You'd think I would know how to get there. Right? Yeah, yeah, it's weird. I could have sworn I'd just take the train and then... Uh, Oh, uh, but no, you're, oh, you're going to get the Express. Oh, the Express. That's what I missed out on. <laughs> For people who uh, this conversation is making no sense, it's because we're talking about Dark City. Uh, this movie was released February 27th, 1998. It was directed by Alex Proyas, and it stars Rufus Sewell, Kiefer Sutherland, Jennifer Connelly, William Hurt, Richard O'Brien, and Ian Richardson. Um, man, I love this movie. I'm so excited to talk about this one. Um but I want to start with you, Dan. Uh, what, uh, what, what's your connection with Dark City? Like, how, how do you feel about? It? Uh, what's your history with this movie? Oh well, I, uh, I've long, I've long uh, enjoyed this movie. I saw it in the theater with my counseling group, which oh. at my in my school, that's the name of your homeroom. Oh, okay. And so we would do activities, and we all wanted to see a movie, and so uh, my counselor Tina took us to see uh, Dark City. And then at the end, uh, she made a comment that I felt was very banal. But now I realize uh, she was just trying to to coach our understanding of a complicated movie. Okay. Yeah. What was her comment that was banal? There's a line at the end of the film where uh, he's like, oh, you went into people's brains to try and find our souls, but you went looking in the wrong place. Yep. Tina it's wanted a- to make sure that we understood that it was in your heart. That's- oh, <laughs> see, I misread that. I thought it was in the butt. I, oh, that's, I, I thought a different I, movie. I was like, this is a weird turn for this to take, but you know what? I, I agree with the message either way. Yeah. So, so, all right. So you were an early adopter of this movie. Now you, you saw it in theaters mm-hmm. with the, and I assume you've watched the director's cut since then. Yeah. I'm curious because like, I've got one big sticking point with this. I've got one thing that like kind of makes me furious and that's that opening narration in the original theatrical cut of this movie yeah, the the title card and the the oration i think i would do without it yeah just yeah as I, just as i would with blade runner honestly i feel like i feel like i watched this movie when it first came out on vhs uh so around like 98 99 and i didn't care for it at all i didn't get it i thought it was confusing like i just didn't understand it at all but the narration wasn't the part like the narration just made it more confusing to me, mm. you know, and then watching it years later without the narration where you just get to kind of sink into it. It's just like a different, better movie. Like it's an entirely yeah. different experience, which I really love. Um, and, yeah. and I think you and I both watched the, uh, the Ebert Roger Ebert does a commentary on this movie. full yeah. length. Um, and so because I had seen the movie a bunch of times, we just did the subtitles and, and listened to Ebert talking about it. Uh, mm. He uh, goes into great depth and has done scene by scene analysis with with this movie yeah. professionally for years. By the time he does this recording, and so he talked about the first scene that you actually see is the main character essentially being born, and this is like classic cinema stuff. Uh, he like emerges from water, uh, but it is very effective, and it's way less effective if you have like a bunch of gibberish about the 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 strangers and and just 
I'd, I'd rather not be placed yeah. in the greater concept. Yeah, it's it's classic like showing versus telling. Yeah. Like uh, the the director's cut lets you kind of be befuddled along with Murdoch and and you're figuring out the puzzle pieces like as he is and that just yeah. makes it so much more of a satisfying experience and you get to really see how all the pieces fit together and uh I don't know I I think it's an incredible movie this is a movie that I think still doesn't really get the recognition it deserves Roger Reber was actually one of the biggest boosters of this movie yeah. so much so yeah that it's included in this list and he like you said like he does these days. He did these days long seminars where he would just teach the movie shot by shot, and I feel like there's not a lot of movies you could do that with and have something to talk about that entire time. And I think that really speaks to the craftsmanship and just like yeah. the the really impeccable attention to detail that this movie has. In addition to just being a really heady and smart, and then fucking entertaining as hell movie, like and that was absolutely the level that I appreciated it at that age. I was probably fifteen. What, was, what year was this? Ninety eight. Yeah. Okay, well, I was eighteen, I guess. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I loved this movie. I loved the weirdness of it. I loved the noir, uh, which didn't translate to VHS very well, as I no. recall. It was, it was, it was enticing box art, but uh, you'd get it home and it'd be like, I remember this movie being so much more beautiful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, they... and it's just dark. It's dark, but like it's not dark in the way that modern blockbusters look just kind of muddy like this one. Yeah. It's intentionally dark like it's it's there. There's a palette going on here that they're working with. They understand shading and lighting and, and contrasting colors and things like that. They're they're painting a picture with all this darkness, which is really yeah. incredible to me. Uh, before we dig into the movie, I want to talk a little bit about the director and some backstory on the production of this movie. So. The director is a guy named Alex Proyas. So he was born in Egypt in 1963 uh, to Greek immigrant parents, and they relocated to Australia when Alex was three, and that's where he stayed the rest of his life. Uh, after some attention-grabbing student films, uh, or early in his career, he did quit school. He quit high school at 17 to go into film school, and he made some really good, important student films. Um, and eventually he moved to the States where he found success as a music video director. He directed videos for bands like Yes, Crowded House, In Excess, and Sting. Uh, I don't know if I've seen any of these videos, but I, you know, I probably have. I've probably seen an In Excess video. Um, but it wasn't until 1994 when Proyas would direct his uh, breakthrough hit movie, which was called The Crow. Uh, any strong feelings on The Crow? Uh, the people that are really excited about The Crow, uh, it gets old fast. Uh, the movie itself is is fun, but... Um, yeah. There was a there was a type of of uh, person in my high school who was Mine very too. excited about the crow. Mine and too. Yep. Yep. You can only have so much of a conversation about that. That's the thing. Like after a while, it's like the movie's fine, but it's just like wow. Yeah. The, there was for for a hot minute, there was quite a little subculture built up around that movie because it is very distinctive. And of course, the tragic story about the crow is that yeah. its star uh, Brandon Lee was killed during an accident on the set. So it's also got that kind of haunted element to it, you know, that uh, a lot of the scenes you're seeing are of a, a man who died well, well, well before his time. Yeah. Um, and that that shook Alex Proyas up quite a bit, too. I know he was he mentioned that there were early conversations where he was working out the plot for Dark City while talking with Brandon Lee with the assumption that Brandon Lee would be the star of the movie when oh, they eventually interesting. made it. Yeah, they were they were tight. And uh, yeah, so it was it was a terrible thing. 
Um, so yeah, they had to they had to innovate to kind of get that film finished. Uh, they had to use some new technology and a major script rewrite because they were about thirty one days into shooting. I think they they had they didn't have too much left to do, but there were a couple of key sequences, and you start noticing in that movie towards the end there'll be fewer and fewer close-ups of, uh, yeah. of the crow, you know, and, and he'll be more in shadow or ADR or something like that. So it's an interesting movie to check out for, for that history. Uh, but Dark City was the big follow-up to the crow after that one was a big commercial and criti- critical success. But uh, Dark City did not really hit. It, it made back, like, barely over its budget. Like, it, it cost $27 million to make. It made $27.2 but that's probably not taking into factor like marketing or overseas yeah, or anything uh, like that. The, you count that as a loss as a studio because there's a lot of energy that goes into making the same amount of money that he has spent. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So he followed up Dark City with a very small Australian comedy called Garage Days, which I remember quite liking. Uh, and then he kind of went into Hollywood tentpole blockbuster territory with movies like iRobot, Knowing, and Gods of Egypt. Um, none of those are particularly well remembered, except for, again, uh, Roger Eber was a big fan of knowing the Nicolas Cage movie that I think has like a 9% on Rotten Tomatoes, but <laughs> Roger Eber gave it a four star review. He's the reason he, I saw it. And I really like that movie. He's, uh, yeah, he's, he's prone to, to really plant his flag firmly in uncertain ground sometimes. Yeah. You know, he seems to find like certain filmmakers that he really connects to, and then he'll just really, uh, follow through with them like i feel like he connected much better with alex proyas than he did with the wakowskis when they were making the matrix mm-hmm. the next year um but yeah so we haven't seen anything from proyas since gods of egypt in 2016 that was kind of a big high profile bomb uh i wouldn't doubt it if we see another like cool visionary movie for him he's still relatively young you know he can he can do something cool still um and i hope he does because I, th- I think he's got a really interesting style um so a little bit about the production on this movie. This was written by Proyas, uh, Lem Dobbs, and David S. Goyer. Uh, Lem Dobbs is best known as a script doctor, and he wrote the scripts for movies like The Limey and Haywire. Uh, David S. Goyer, we best know as the creator of the Chris, uh, Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy, or the writer of the trilogy. Oh. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, he's kind of overseeing all of the DCEU right now. So if you don't like Man of Steel or Suicide Squad or any of those movies, uh, you can talk to him about that. Because uh, I don't like them either. Um, but yeah, so Proyas got to make this film off the back of the huge success of The Crow. Uh, and they pretty much let him make the movie that he wanted until they saw the first screening of it and thought it might be too confusing. That's when they insisted that Proyas add in this opening title crawl. I'm going to read out the entire thing because it's been cut from the director's cut version. It definitely, I. it seems like one of these things where the... It was written not by the people that, that made it. Right, yeah. It's not quite to the level of like Harrison Ford's apathy in uh, uh, Blade Runner, like voiceover, <laughs> but it's still pretty, uh, it's pretty perfunctory. Uh, the text here says, First there was darkness, then came the strangers. They were a race as old as time itself. They had mastered the ultimate technology, the ability to alter physical reality by will alone. They called this ability tuning, but they were dying. Their civilization was in decline, and so they abandoned their world, seeking a cure for their own mortality. Their endless journey brought them to a small blue world in the farthest corner of the galaxy, our world. Here, they thought they had finally found what they had been searching for. My name is Dr. Daniel Poe Schreiber. I am just a man. I help the strangers conduct their experiments. I have betrayed my own kind. Like... This, like, okay, normally I'm not going to, like, harp too much on, like, different little 
differences in movies or uh, or I'm not even like anti voiceover narration necessarily. This makes me furious. The fact that they yeah. put this in like actually makes me physically angry <laughs> that they would do that because it's like you just you just you took away the entire fun of this movie. The entire fun of it is like falling in and figuring yes. it out for yourself and being surprised or satisfied when it all comes together. And I, I feel like just robbing them of that like took away so much of the movie's impact. And I think that's why people really didn't know what to do with it when it came out. Yeah, it did not land in the way that The Matrix landed. And it's definitely less of a, I mean, I'm sure it was less expensive than to The Matrix, but it's a very similar movie. There's even very similar, like everybody's all dressed in leather and um, fighting each other. I don't know. It seems like yeah. it could have had some of the same appeal, but it never got caught on in the same way. I mean, it uh, was... And they have the same sort, but they're both kind of mind-bending what is reality yeah, yeah, kind of at the uh, heart stories. at the heart of both of these movies is uh, a foreign like a, an alien species of some kind trying to figure out what makes man work, like trying to understand what what is humanity and how we can Classic recreate it. Trope. Yeah, exactly. And I think Dark City got there uh, a full year and a half before The Matrix did. Uh, the Matrix actually shot on the same soundstage that this one did, uh, they, oh. and they used some of the same set pieces. <laughs> so, you know, hey, yeah, the DNA is right there. Um, yeah, so this movie was made in Australia. It was shot, uh, yeah, around the same time as The Matrix was. Uh, Alan, the interesting thing to note about uh, this movie is that Alex Proyas is a big fan of Rocky Horror Picture Show, and so he wrote the villainous role of Mr. Hand specifically for Richard O'Brien. If you don't know, if you don't recognize Richard O'Brien in this, it's because uh, he's best known as playing uh, Riff Raff in uh, Rocky Horror, and he's actually the creator of that show as well. And apparently, Richard O'Brien would uh, do numbers from Rocky Horror on the set, like in his stranger wow. costume for people. Which would be incredible, I think. <laughs> that's intense. <laughs> and I never knew that's who that was until until this viewing. Does, I've, yeah, I've seen this does movie like half a dozen you times. Saying, you saying that, I can picture his face. Yeah, yeah. I just, I never put it together. Like, I kind of always thought he just did Rocky Horror and nothing else. But yeah. Yeah, he, and he's very, very creepy in this. Um, well, let's jump into this movie and talk about it a little bit. So, yeah. I think, I mean, obviously this film... Uh, owes a lot to like German expressionism, like Metropolis yeah. and uh, Faust, which you've already talked about on this show. Like it, it's so striking in such a way. And like my first note that I wrote down is just like, they wrote this movie for me. Like this feels like <laughs> targeted content, like everything that I respond to as a sensibility, you know, sometimes you'll see like some kind of like uh, a pattern or a color or, or some kind of motif that really just connects with you on some kind of visceral level. It's got a bunch of that in here for me. It's got like spiral imagery and clockwork imagery. It's got film noir lighting. It's got like low atmospheric music. And it's got Jennifer Connelly looking Jennifer like she Connelly. did in The Rocketeer. Like, oh my <laughs> God, come on. Like this movie feels designed for me. And I find it's more rewarding to me every single time I watch it. Like I find something new and something exciting that I like more about it every time. Yeah, it really is. Um, it's almost a Wes Anderson level of attention to detail, but without being um, as uh, aware of itself uh, or as, as blatant. And it's um, Jennifer Connelly, of course, is beautiful. 
Yeah. Um, and has a very, they, everybody has these very understated performances. So there's, yeah, Jennifer Connelly, William Hurt, uh, and Kiefer Sutherland are all big people that are in this movie. Yeah. And there's this other dude that is the main character. Uh, my Ruf- wife, Rufus my wife Sewell. Rosie was not able to join us, but she did want us to make sure Rufus Sewell. Yeah. That he gets his props for his cheekbones. His his uh, his cheekbones apparently are excellent. No, they uh, truly are. They truly are. He also are. has haunting eyes and is very attractive and cinematic. So he he looks he looks like a man on a movie, which he is. No, he's he's a snack. He is no, a man no, on a movie. No denying it. No denying <laughs> it. Uh, thank you, Rosie, for your input on the dreaminess of uh, of Rufus Sewell. But I agree with that completely. I think he's great. Very, he's got a very distinctive look, and I think, I think it helps that he's got such a deep set features because he looks very yeah. gaunt and uh, haunted, yeah. and he catches the light in a very like. I think she's exactly right. He looks very cinematic because like his his angles are almost Art Deco, you know, like the 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 backgrounds and and his face are kind of cut from the same cloth in an interesting way. I don't know. So we we open the movie with like this long, slow uh, panning out of outer space. And this is where the text crawl was or like the voiceover was in the original. And I'm glad they didn't cut it. Like they left that same shot of just empty blackness, like looking down. I think that just sets the mood perfectly. And it kind of lets you know that like the, the space thing, the outer space, the alien element of it is not coming out of nowhere. Like in the back of your mind, you're kind of prepared for it. Because that's the first thing that you're taking in when you're watching this movie. I think it's a really interesting way of kind of setting that up. Yeah. Um, but right away, like I wrote that this movie feels like it would make an amazing escape room. Like if you were to do a themed <laughs> escape room of Dark City, this would be kind of an amazing concept because John Murdoch, or he doesn't know that's his name yet, but a man wakes up uh, in a bathtub. There's a naked dead woman in the room. There's like a swinging yeah. light overhead. And from here on, it's just kind of a matter of him piecing together who he is, uh, who this woman is. Did he kill her? And then as he's leaving the hotel room, these three menacing looking men in uh, trench coats and uh, fedoras start walking in with great fanfare. We know something weird is <laughs> happening because there's like all this really loud, intense music. But I love that every new little discovery that he's making just makes his mystery weirder. Like, yes. And and it keeps going like they keep escalating in that sense, and you feel like you can't get any weirder, you can't get any more strange, and still be able to tie it together. But they do. Like I feel like this movie comes together in such a satisfying way. It's incredible. Yeah. The uh, um, uh, the three weird men immediately make it uh, very intense. There, you just see them in the middle distance. They're sixty, eighty feet away. But the music and just their posture and there's something wrong with them, but you can't really see. Uh, yeah, this movie was a feast. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think this, again, with the showing and not telling, I think this movie does a really beautiful job of kind of putting you off center so that you're not expecting any, you know, to expect anything. Like, it's not too weird that these mysterious guys show up. And it's not too yeah. weird that this is like a film noir kind of setting, but things are anachronistic things don't seem to fit nothing fits and yeah uh, you were talking about he he doesn't know who he is he's there are ways in which over the course of the movie he learns who he is but much of that information isn't who he is it's it's planted 
uh, or created by um, these strangers. Yeah. Um, so there is also things like he picks up, a, he knocks over as he's getting out of this bathroom after waking up, he knocks over a fish and he puts the fish safely in the bathtub before finishing fleeing. Um, that reveals who he is in a way that's more significant than later he gets his wallet uh, and learns his name. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, we kind of spoiled it when I read out the narration. So hopefully everyone's seen this movie already when you talk about it. Yeah. But that's kind of a central theme here is that like the, the strangers are trying to figure out what makes us human, you know, trying to figure out what makes us tick. And so they keep implanting all these different memories and experimenting on people. In this case, he's being experimented. They're taking yeah. just a random person and seeing how he would adapt if he were suddenly a serial murderer. Yeah. And he rejects this. Like the basic human part of him that doesn't want to be a serial murderer, doesn't want to hurt people, rejects it. And that's what kind of starts this whole adventure for him is that he's he's uh, embracing his goodness in the face of like an evil oppressive force. And actually, I wouldn't even call the strangers evil. I don't know. Like Ebert, yeah, the, yeah, Ebert, Ebert in his essay and in his commentary, he kind of takes pity on them, right? The, yeah, and I, I had never viewed them through that lens uh i always saw them as evil just because they they're straight up walking around in dead bodies i think is is we learn at one point and they're all uh, very british and you know that terrifying. if someone is yeah there's this little kid man there's yeah. this little kid uh who Mr. says Sleep. at one point kill him it's very bad <laughs> it's very oh very, man they're they're very evil. I love that because the little kid is like silent the entire movie except for some oh, chattering. Man. And then when you hear its voice, it's like a <laughs> it's fucking horse. That's it's what it sounds voice, like. But it's so right. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I but again, I mean, I saw this movie um, when I was younger. So when it, it, it was it is very good commentary, Ebert's commentary. Um, so I did really appreciate the uh, they have they're they're very sympathetically explained even though the costuming and the posture and the fact that they're manipulating people in this way makes them antagonists they're very um they're very simple uh, sympathetic yeah in that one degree because like to, to a degree they're they're kind of pathetic you know they yeah. they know they know exactly what element is missing to like make them sort like i don't know that maybe they don't know exactly the element but they know that they're not enough. They know that there's something in their DNA that's not measuring up and they're going to die because of it, but they can never crack it. And they're, they're, they're destined to never be able to figure it out. And so it does make them sad in a way. Like you can't feel too sorry for them because they're experimenting on people and killing yeah. people. And, and I actually never picked up on it until I read uh, Ebert's essay again, just now that uh, these are, they look like this because they're inhabiting corpses yeah. Like the aliens themselves are like those little squid like things that are inside the bodies and the things that they are puppeting around are dead bodies. And that's why they look like that. Yeah, we get one weird. Uh, uh, we look like deep inside the eye of one and we get a little CGI squiggle fish. Yeah. that is the alien. But um, you never see them. The, what you learn about them is when they die, their blood isn't red. It's it's this black tarry goo. Yeah. Like they, they're not, then they fly. Like they, they have these sort of, they're, they're very, uh, very scary. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, and again, it's just the escalating weirdness. It's like, 
you see them and it's like, okay, it's already scary. Then you see them starting to float and it's like, holy shit. But again, we've set up that this is a world that is off, that things can yeah. happen like this. So like, even when we get the reveal of what's going on beneath the city and that we've got these like armies of like British bald men, like chattering at each other, like it doesn't feel silly and it doesn't feel out of left field because it feels like you're, you're, you're put so on edge the entire time. Like, it's not going to surprise you with anything that it brings on and everything's in play. Um, yeah. So like, I, I just, I really enjoy like letting the puzzle pieces kind of fit together. Like it, one thing leads to the next, like there's an initial on a suitcase and he's got a, he's got a wallet that has his name in it, but it's trapped at the automat and Oh wait, yeah. he can't, he doesn't have change. So he opens it with his mind. Like yeah. what, what's happening? But maybe by accident or, or subconsciously. When he does it, he almost doesn't seem surprised that he can do it. But at That's the same true. time, he's, he's just kind of like, I think he does it like it's an impulse. And then he kind of thinks about it later. Um, we get a great. This is more yeah. of him learning him himself, learning who he is uh, organically rather than finding out his name from the wallet. He he learns that he's able to kind of manipulate the world around him. Uh, and he, he hones that a little bit. Uh, until the fun uh, twist at the end. Yeah, yeah. Um, we get a moment where we are introduced to uh, Jennifer Connelly's character, and I don't, I'm blanking on her name. Uh, I mean, I think it changes. Uh, I think it's yeah, Emma. It's Emma, Emma yeah. at this point, and it becomes Anna later. And That's it. Until I watched it with the subtitles this last time, I thought she just had the same name throughout the whole movie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I definitely felt like her character was a little underwritten. Uh, Ebert yeah. had a good bit in his essay where he said that she's kind of the heart of the movie. Um, where he explains it well, like just saying that she – it's it's kind of the idea of um, – uh, what was the thing? Bertrand Russell called it last Thursdayism. It's the idea of like, uh, for all we know, the world could have been created last Thursday yeah. and we'll never know because it's been made to look old. And that's kind of what we're working with here. Like, and she believes that she's in love with this man, yeah. but she's never met this man. She doesn't know him. Like they've, they they believe they love each other because they've had these memories implanted. So it's kind of the question of like, are we the sum of our memories or is there something more like base and instinctual that makes us human or that makes us attracted to one another? I don't know. And she, she's a very sad character, but it's because she was made to be a sad character. Yeah. She, she sings this beautiful song, but there's this tone of sadness. Uh, she, she, like I, the, they had had a fight because she'd had an affair. She didn't have the affair. No. They're not even married. It's, it's mind bending. Um, and you just get these little glimpses from this very spare dialogue sometimes. Um, it's very well performed. She's amazing. I, I really like the song that she's singing. And I think it's another really elegant way to show that this world isn't quite right. Like, she starts singing uh, Sway With Me, which is kind of an old standard, mm -hmm. but it's got like kind of an electronic drum beat underneath it and like little bits of like, I don't know, hip hop flavor to it, which is just not something you would hear in the time period that they're purporting that this is. And so unlike other movies of the 90s that would have like kind of hip hop songs thrown in, like just as, as uh, part of the zeitgeist, this is kind of defining it as being neither past nor present, you know, it's, it's yeah. a little bit of both and it's a little bit of neither, you know, you're going to find yourself in an automat. That's like from the 1920s or something. 
Um, and then uh, there, there's these uh, the buildings and it, there's different architectural time of buildings. It's interesting. Um, you're, I, like I said, I was a teenager when I saw this. I didn't know enough about. I clearly don't know that much about 20th century history now to be able to give names to things, but yeah, uh, those things, your brain catches onto them and it is jarring and you're just uncomfortable throughout the whole movie. Yeah. Cause nothing fits. And yeah, you, you, but it's, it's a great way to get you to go along for the ride. And then they have little details that I don't think are even clues or meant to put us off. I think they're just interesting, cool details. Like, uh, Bumstead, the the professor or the detective in this story, played by William Hurt. When we first meet him, he's sitting in his apartment smoking and playing a very ornate or accordion. Yeah, which is such a great choice. I don't know. I don't think that means anything. I think it just means he happens to be a guy who sits at home and plays an accordion, just because it's a cool choice. It's a weird choice and it's something distinctive. And yeah, and that's the thing. Like I think it's easy to discount this movie as being kind of shallow because. It's super fucking cool. Like objectively <laughs> from like a, from, from any kind of level you look at it, I'm like, Oh, this is badass, you know? And, uh, so it's easy to kind of just, dis, dis, brush that off as like, Oh, it's visually spectacular, but there's nothing going on under the surface, blah, 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 blah. But there's so much going on under the surface here. Um, which I really love. Um, so spiral imagery kept coming up yep. throughout the entire movie um, and I think just kind of meant to indicate like the cyclical nature of their lives and anything like that. Um, it sure had a lot more, uh, a lot more payoff than the spiral imagery in Westworld. Oh, did that not pay off? I only watched first season. I guess I only really watched the first season too. <laughs> I think they ended in the first season with some, uh, some payoff for it, but it was not really, uh, it, it wasn't as thematically embedded as it clearly is in dark city. Yeah. I kind of just want to say that show ended after one season in my mind. I'm just like, Hey, that's what, that was a really good one season show. They should bring that back sometime, you know, even though it's on like season eight or something, I don't even know. Um, yeah. So what did you think about the CGI and the visual effects in this? <laughs> Do you think that it's held up? The visual effects absolutely hold up. Right? Uh, the CGI use is very spare. Yeah. I didn't think the alien looked very cool when we see the little squid fish alien that lives inside the thing. Um, I, but I think that, you know, they wanted to show it and they wanted to, to let their CGI people um, crack their knuckles and really do something weird. Yeah. Uh, Yes, I mean, but for the most part, the visual effects are um, practical, and they talked in the uh, commentary. Ebert talked about one of the effects where two buildings are being the, the, the these uh, strangers move the city around and change things and adjust things um, all the time. And there's one point where two buildings are coming together and they're going to collide. They just put a building on a big dolly and moved it toward the other building because. Yeah. It's, the the easiest way to achieve that effect um and it looks incredible it looks great yeah i mean you look at it and it's like yeah okay you can see some of the edges on it you can see that you know this is definitely 1998 level cgi but also it's promoting such an unreality you know i think the problem a lot of cgi falls into is that it's trying to look realistic and i don't think this is trying to look realistic this is trying to look fabricated and so yeah. it succeeds at that. But we have those amazing shots of like that big swirling vortex in the center of the city that's like producing buildings that are like twisting and growing out of the ground like weeds. And 
just all this I mean that entire tuning sequence is incredible there's this uh, there's stuff you don't even notice like the first time around like when he when Murdoch first gets out of his apartment like everyone in the lobby of the hotel is asleep yeah. and then they just kind of all wake up at the same time it's not even really a lot brought to attention but this is something that happens every night or every certain number of hours because it's always night and they just uh they'll they'll put everybody to sleep they'll alter their memories and then they'll just see what happens so yeah in this tuning sequence, we get to see like a, a a poor couple be turned into a rich couple, and then we're gonna see what this does to their situation, you know, or people will be and to their attitudes and the stories they tell each other and the the biases that come through in the way they talk. Their yeah. personalities are altered. Yeah, and so working in all this, like we mentioned, is Dr. Daniel Schrieber, played by Kiefer Sutherland, who is. Uh, making some choices here, <laughs> making some interesting choices. I think it's a good performance. I think it holds like, up. I think it holds up, and yeah. it was it was helpful to know that he was uh, kind of doing a bit as a as an homage to who was he, Laurie? I don't remember who the. Um, he, he's doing a bit to sound like somebody from an old movie uh, because there were some of these character actors back in the fifties. Oh, uh, forget but it. But he's. Hmm. He's got a very breathless uh, way of delivering tone, you know, his conversation, but it's very insistent. Um, I was trying to think, like, have there been any other roles where Kiefer Sutherland hasn't been, like, the bad boy or, like, the action hero? Like, I feel like this is an unusual, because he's, like, kind of an obsequious nerd in this, and he's just, like, you know, he's very frail, and he's very yep. kind of, like, quiet and, and, and weird, you know, and that's not usually a role that Kiefer Sutherland goes for. That's true. Um, but I, I think he does a really nice job. Like, And the makeup on him is subtle, too, because I didn't even notice like until towards the end of the movie that half of his eye is like crusted over with like the skin yeah. tag or something. Like, Yeah, it's yeah kind it of a, seems like they've maybe been stitching him back together or something to keep him going. It, it's not clear what uh, the nature of his disfigurement is. Uh, we learn later that he has altered his own memories in order to better serve the strangers. Uh, he's a very interesting character. Yeah, and he just mix and matches uh, memories for people. So what was one he was making is just like a little bit of troubled childhood, yeah. uh, a first love, and then of he's, course he's, a death in the family. Like like he's, he's like a scientist witch. It's a it's such yeah. a good character. I was thinking of like the Far Side cartoons of like God in his kitchen, you know, like kind of images <laughs> of that. Like whoops, too many jerks, you know. Yeah, it's kind of one of kind of one of those things. Um, it, it's a cool idea and. This, of course, kind of leads to the payoff of him injecting, like, basically basically doing kind of a Matrix, like, I know Kung Fu, into John yeah. Murdoch's brain. He just, like, injects it, like, tell, giving him lessons on how to control his innate psychic ability. Uh, and we get this big anime showdown. Like, this 100% turns into, like, Akira by the end of the movie. Yeah, I was going to compare it to Dragon Ball Z. I don't want to yeah. step too fast past the this uh the revelation that you can get a lifetime's worth of memory stuck into your head oh yeah yeah which we've learned over the course of the movie and so he gets it but what we learn is the doctor has uh inserted his mentoring and training of how to tune so he gets a lifetime's worth of practice in the course of uh recovering from having this injection so uh, he's, that he's, I remember being really, I mean, that's one of those uh, uh, mind expanding moments when you're 18 years old. Yeah, he's learning from the mailman. The yeah, it's, it's like a memory of a mailman and of like a, a school teacher and yeah. all these different things that are just teaching him how to tune. 
you know, and there, I think this, like, yeah, my notes are a little sparse because I kept like just stopping taking notes and just watching the movie because I'm just like, yeah. God damn, this is so cool to look at. But like this whole showdown at the end, I kept thinking like they must have had a lot of faith as actors uh, in Proyas to pull this off yeah. because they must, and this must've been a very silly day on set is all I'm saying. Like, yeah, it's all right. Uh, you two, you stand opposite each other and you're going to stare real hard and I'm going to put a bunch of special effects in later. Trust me. It's going to look cool. But like, yeah, it's, it's one where you have to really control who has a camera in their, <laughs> in your space. Uh, cause you don't want those, uh, pre pre, uh, CGI green screen pictures getting out. Uh, you look pretty silly. Yeah. I have, I have, uh, Excuse me. Just a general uh, objection to wizard battles and psychic battles. Yeah, where none of the combat is analogous to the world that I understand. Mm-hmm. So there, he's just like talking about how he has to concentrate real hard or whatever, but that doesn't mean anything to me. So it's just two two guys like yelling and screaming at each other across a distance. It is like an episode of Dragon Ball Z. Like the eighty percent of a Dragon Ball Z episode where they're just yelling at each other. Yeah, it's not, it's not the fun part uh, of of them punching because I kind of understand the mechanics of punching or that sort of thing. But the yelling is boring. Yeah, and the the throwing magical blobs at one another that it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, and uh, I think we're given enough context at this point to be invested in the the end result of this battle. Sure. And they yeah. don't spend too much time of like stare attack, stare attack, stare attack, stare attack. Like they start mixing it up and like the city's crumbling around them and they're flying through time and space. Um, I, I wanted to highlight the the strangers a little bit too before we moved on. Yeah. Like in particular, uh, we have Mr. Hand, like we said, played by uh, Richard O'Brien. And he's kind of the Agent Smith analog, if you were going to compare this to The Matrix again. Mm-hmm. Like, he's the uh, he's kind of the main nemesis. He's like the face of the of the organization, and he's also the one with the most complex motives, um, especially because he he injects himself with some human memories as kind of a uh, an attempt to better understand and stop Murdoch, and it kind of leaves him feeling like conflicted and confused and like realizing that he doesn't really have a place in either world. Um, and it's, it's a good creepy performance. Yeah. Like, I don't know. And all of the, all of the, uh, strangers are extra creepy. We mentioned the little child, of course, which I think is like serving as some kind of bulldog most of the time. Cause it just kind yeah. of growls and bites and <laughs> is very quick with that freaky looking knife. Um, yeah, yeah. And just really well designed. I mean, they, when they're in their trench coats, they're creepy when they're out of their trench coats, they're in like these like dune style still suits where they're just like sewn into them and must have taken like all my, they must take like a two hours a day, like just getting in and out of those suits. Um, I wasn't, I wasn't surprised to hear that there was a connection with the crow. Uh, there's a lot of skin tight leather. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. He's got a, he's got a style. I guess. Skin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yes, we finally get to this, uh, this final conflict. Um, we realize that the dark city is in fact just like floating in space. I kind of take it as like, it's a, uh, a prison cell or something kind of like, I feel like people were abducted from earth and brought here and that now they're just yeah. kind of running in this maze. Well, it's like a terrarium or something you keep yeah. your pets in, but, but there's life size. They learn the hard way by, uh, 
busting a, a, a through a brick wall, they learn the hard way that there is nothing outside of the city. Yeah. Uh, we we get a great shot when Inspector Bumstead uh, uh, tackles one of the strangers. He goes through and flies off into space to his death. But the last thing he sees is getting to fly above the city and see exactly how big it is and this whole intricate network of like alien architecture underneath it. And it looks so cool. I don't know. It's just yes. like, and then it's just kind of an amazing thing to be like that character's last sight. And that's how we're seeing it too. Is like, we're seeing this the, like right before he dies. So it feels extra hopeless, you know? Um, but it all is not hopeless though, because uh, Murdoch is uh, triumphant. He defeats the strangers and he now has the ability to tune the city to his will. And so he's finally going to figure out where that shell beach is because he's going to build it himself. And he's so build the, it himself. Yeah, and he's going to he's going to cause there to be a sun which can shine on it. He he essentially goes from being born at the beginning of the movie to being a god of this little world that he is in. Um, he meets back up with uh, Emma, who's now Anna. Mm. Um, and we don't know what memories she has because of the last tuning, maybe none yeah. of him. Uh, and But they uh, maybe make a little connection. And so, it, it, I don't know, there is there well, is. He's got this, those cheekbones and those haunted eyes. You know, what are you going to do? They both have very, uh, very admirable um, arrangements of body pieces. Go them, go them, you know. Body parts, that is, excuse <laughs> Body pieces. <laughs> 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 we're all like just a, a pile of chunks really in the end you know yeah yeah and it's a really lovely ending i like that we get to end on sunshine we get to end it on on feels very hope. comforting to have the last scene be out on a pier under the sun looking across the water uh it it's it's beautiful and after this it is dark the entire movie even some of the you know scenes are warm but yeah um, until that sun comes up, you you don't realize what you're missing. I think there's a really interesting potential sequel, like checking in on this civilization 20 years later <laughs> with like, what's happened? Like, how has this power gone to his head? Like, what is, uh, what yeah, is all this those world machines look like are still now? down there. Yeah. Are gonna, is there going to be the uh, son of dark city? <laughs> right. Something like son of dark city. I like that dark village. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, th I mean, I think it would be amazing. I I'm sure we're never going to get a proper follow up on this, but I mean, this is also a pretty singular. Best, really. <laughs> it's a pretty singular <laughs> Maybe they vision. Come up with a better idea than Dar than Son of Dark City. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I, I think it's like it's like the first season of Westworld or something. You don't really need more to the story. Yeah, uh, you can because, just kind of leave it in this perfect little bubble. Yeah. That it, and uh, yeah, definitely. I, I don't. I've, I've I've run out of notes on Dark City. Do you have anything else you'd like to say to Capital? Well, yeah. So yeah. Uh, I also wanted to pass. On, I had notes. Uh, oh yeah, bring it. Rosie's other note was uh, that it's exciting to think that there are like really excellent unknown genre movies out there. Yeah. Um, when she was talking about it, she uh, said it was. Well, she said it was. Uh, Something you could tell people about, and they would they would be impressed if they watched it and be like, "That person knows about movies." Uh, and it might have been a recommendation to her from the people at Scarecrow Video. So shout out to Scarecrow Video in Seattle, yeah, um, and to just to video clerks in general who give recommendations. 
I I miss a good video clerk. I mean, we have uh, we have Film is Truth here in Bellingham. They've got some yeah. great video clerks there. But yeah, yeah, that's definitely something I miss about the uh, communal video store experiences. Having a nerd behind the counter to nerd with. So yeah, but nerd that's is why a noun verb. Uh, uh, do you want to boost your social media, or whatever, for the um, for your uh, what what is the box office? What is the name of your thing where you keep track of the movies that you watch and your your reviews on it? Oh, my letterboxed. Letterboxed. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's so it's so uh, pervasive that I don't even have to remember the name of the service. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Exactly. Yeah, you got it. So it's it's similar, I suppose. It's just uh, there was a time when some some weird teenager would tell you about all the weird movies they watch. I love it. I love it. I am still that weird teenager twenty years later, but I'm still him. Um, well, thank you so much, Dan, for being here to talk about Dark City with me. I love this movie. I was excited to revisit it. Um, uh, do you have anything you need to plug or any, uh, any social media you want people to check out or anything like that? Uh, th- no. Um, I think we probably all should just get off of Facebook just generally. I uh, think that's a, that's talking a talking social media. That's actually a really good recommendation. Everybody uh, look me up on uh, uh, Facebook and then delete me. Yeah, and then delete right. your own and then delete everything and just go hide in a cave. Cause I, I really want to do that right now. Um, I'm just, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see the, we'll see the light at some point. Uh, but we may go through some more darkness first. We'll see. Here's hoping. Here's hoping. Well, thank you so much for being here and talking about this awesome movie with me. Uh, you can find all of my stuff at Rogers list pod. Uh, that's at Gmail. That's at Twitter. That's on Instagram. Uh, so find all my stuff there. And we will be back next week with a movie I have never seen before. Uh, this is called In a Lonely Place. It's a Nicholas Ray film. I'm not familiar with the plot of it at all, so I'm excited to get into it. So tune in next week. Join me in a lonely place. Bye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>